Welcome to Happy Hour. Oh, well, thank you. It's a delight to be on the Friday Happy Hour. Uh, I've listened in before, but this is my first time as a guest, and so uh, delighted to be with you. Hey, it's been a long week, Tyler. Good to be on the Friday Happy Hour and catch up on what's happening up in Oregon. That's right. Well, uh, for uh, our audience, we we do this little show called Friday Happy Hour on Fridays. Uh, It's a great opportunity to, to grab a cold one. Uh, and sit back and relax and reflect on the week that was uh, on the American shoreline. Um, now, this this Friday happy hour is kind of a unique one because, Peter, on our show a couple weeks ago, uh, we had on Erica Sears, who uh, works with the Oregon Coastal Tourism Association and helps promote the Oregon coast and manages all of that. And it's a, it's a very good show. I suggest you listen to it. Was it was a great show. Absolutely. Loved Erica. Erica's awesome and does great work. And on the show, we gave a shout out to our boy, Thane. <laughs> And said, hey, Thane should attend the conference, uh, the People's Coast uh, Summit, which is coming up, which is this Oregon coastal uh, gathering that they're doing in Garibaldi. Well, uh, Thane reached out to us and said, hey, I heard I heard my name on the show. I heard you invited me to go do something. Yeah. We thought we'd better call and ask him. Yeah. <laughs> but it turns out Thane's got some really cool ideas uh, cooking for his own show that he uh, co-hosts with Brad Warren, Changing Waters. So Thane, let, for this happy hour, what do you say you get the first round and tell us a little bit about some of these show ideas you got cooking? Well, I've got several ideas. Uh, You know, I've been fortunate over the course of a a long legal career to do a lot of work uh, in areas that I happen to be passionate about. Uh, And uh, and I've been uh, not only practicing in Oregon, but also in Washington and Alaska. And in fact, uh, the law firm I was is actually the largest law firm in Alaska. So I've I've been privileged enough to to go up uh, to the the far northern part of our our, country. Country and I've got a couple of ideas, but one of them that I'm really uh, uh, enthusiastic about is the uh, show devoted to talking about this uh, revival of the canoe culture among the Northwest uh, coastal tribes, and uh, that came about through uh, kind of an odd uh, coincidence. In fact, I'm always surprised when I think back about just how much chance uh, and total coincidence plays in a formative experiences in one's life. And uh, this one had to do with the fact I went, even though I'm a native of my my favorite hometown that I've been in love with my whole life, Astoria, at the mouth of the Columbia River, where the mighty Columbia meets the vast Pacific, as we say. Um, I nonetheless went to high school in California, and I went with to high school with a fellow who was, as it turned out, a uh, uh, a member of uh, the uh, Quinault Indian tribe. But his dad, who was a Coast Guard officer, subsequently retired, became in his retirement the head of Indian education for the state of Washington, and. Uh, before he uh, left that position, uh, he decided that as somebody who had grown up uh, in uh, a rich 
culture dating back thousands of years involving canoe journeys where tribes traded with one another, visited with one another, held what are called potlatches, these uh, uh, really uh, incredibly uh, extravagant, if you will, kind of uh, parties, uh, dinner parties that a, uh, a chief or a leader or a head person in a tribe would put on to impress the others, that he wanted to revive that. Uh, this is back in the mid-1980s, uh, and the person I'm talking about is named by uh, Oh, my Emmett Oliver. Emmett passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 102. Um, and sadly, his son, who was an extraordinary uh, Northwest Indian artist, just passed away himself just a, a few uh, weeks ago. But his uh, his nephew, Tony Johnson, is the chair of the Chinook Indian tribe. The Chinook um, were probably the most prominent tribe uh, in the lower Columbia region for thousands of years. And sadly, uh, um, as we speak, they are not a federally recognized tribe. That has to do with uh, a lot of, frankly, internal politics and, uh, and things we need not go into. But the important thing is that Tony has become a real leader in championing uh, not only the, the continuation of, but the expansion of this canoe culture. And what it involves, and what I think would be of interest to your readers, is just a uh, it involves getting a, uh, a tribe, one of the West Coast tribes in Oregon, Washington. They even had one in uh, British Columbia because historically all of these tribes um, that uh, existed on the West Coast of the United States from uh, Vancouver Island clear down to probably more like uh, the northern Oregon coast, the Tillamook area, all uh, actively traded with one another. They were all what were called fish eating tribes. So their their culture, their traditions all revolved around the, the seafood fish resources there. And so what is um, what uh, the canoe culture involves is uh, getting uh, a tribe to host to throw a potlatch, if you will, for the other tribes. Um, and when this culture was revived back in uh, 1980s, uh, Emmett Oliver had the idea that it would be a great uh, thing to have the first one coincide with the state of Washington's 100th uh, centennial of its statehood. So it, this was in 1989. And so he got permission from the United States government to sell uh, a, uh, a large old cedar tree, which historically we used for carving these canoes, for each of about 13 tribes, something like that anyway, I don't recall the precise number, and then brought in his son and and uh, a couple of others who still knew how, had preserved the old canoe-making skills and traditions using traditional tools, and they carved canoes um, from these cedar trees and then uh, carved paddles and then taught people how to paddle and how to read the waters uh, of the river, ocean, um, and Puget Sound, or the Salish Sea, as it's called up here, the waters extending into Canada. And uh, so for the bicentennial 1989, I believe they paddled uh, from uh, Port Townsend in northern 
Puget Sound down to Seattle, where they were met by the governor. But since then, uh, pretty much every year, one of the tribes from British Columbia down to the Columbia River have hosted this event. And it's an opportunity that the journeys themselves last anywhere from a week to a month. And they involve, importantly, the children, Indian children, uh, Native children, who have uh, an opportunity to spend time with their elders, both men and women. Uh, this is very much a, a family affair. Um, and the number of canoes can range from just a few to up to 20. Um, and the canoes themselves are replicas of the old cedar canoes. They're not cedar canoes uh, now that they use, but they're they're seaworthy um, and seagoing and and look like the old um, Chinook canoes, the seagoing canoes that were used hundreds of years ago. And they go from village to village, and then they act out and and um, and school the the young children uh, in their traditions. They do dance. Dancing, they do storytelling. Um, they they honor and preserve their traditions. It's just a, a marvelous thing, and I'm excited about it. I, it's gotten a fair amount of press locally, and Tony Johnson, the chair of the Chinook Tribe, has been instrumental in, uh, and I say, in preserving and expanding it. And I'm trying to get the Chinook Indian Tribe recognized federally uh, through the, the one tool we lawyers know, lawsuits. But more importantly, on this canoe culture, I just think it'd be a great show for your guests and, and listeners. And I'm hoping to, to get Tony on. I'm pretty confident I can, but he's a busy guy. And so that's one idea. Damn. That's a great idea. Oh I'll drink gosh. to that. I, I will, will drink, drink to that one. That that is fascinating <laughs> thing and I got to tell you I was up in uh, I was at uh in Quinault out on the Olympic uh, Peninsula and heard a Quinault storyteller at the Quinault uh, National Park. This is the Olympic National Park Lodge right there. And what an amazing culture up there. I don't know a lot about it. Um, really looking forward to learning more about that. And I was also up in Sitka, Alaska, and there is a museum in Sitka, and I can't remember, maybe called Museum of the Northwest or something, but there was a canoe-making uh, project underway uh, the native culture there is really well preserved. They have a lot of native artisans that are resident at the museum and they were building this damn canoe. And uh, t I mean, these things are not small, are they? I mean, these, these are big boats. The original designs of these things are what, what, what like, what's the story on these things? Yeah, well, these canoes, you're right. They're not small. I mean, you think of a large, old, we're talking hundreds-year-old cedar tree. So these are trees that are uh, 40 feet in length, you know. And uh, as I understand, and believe me, it's a very primitive understanding, so don't take me at face value here, but uh, they actually burn out the center of these trees, the logs, if you will, uh, to get kind of a start on what will ultimately become the bottom of the canoe. Uh, but you use water and heat and rocks to kind of stretch using uh, other uh, uh, you know, uh, like branches and things like that to stretch the canoe to give it that classic kind of oval uh, seagoing shape that we're familiar with. Um, and then use adzes. Uh, these, uh, they're kind of a combination of an axe and a machete kind of a thing to carve it. It's, it's, and then, of course, the, the bows were quite ornate um, when they were carved. Um, 
and that was particularly true on the Vancouver Island. The, the Quakutals are probably one of the best known for that, the tribe up around what's Nootka Sound, the center of Vancouver Island. But And those canoes were created, too, I might add. It's like your hood ornament. Historically, but Tony can tell you all about that. But, but even right. today, with the new modern canoes that are, I think they're more of a fiberglass, they are still, they have this extended bow or prow of the boat that's ornately carved in traditional Northwest design, uh, and they're just a sight to behold. Uh, and it's so wonderful, at least for me, to see the children, you know, kids ranging all the way from five, six up to into their teens, uh, so many of them along on the journey, preserving their culture, preserving their language, too. You know, those languages are dying out, and Tony still speaks the traditional Chinook language, which was, um, as you may know, kind of the trading language that was used all up and down the West Coast, dating back into the late 1700s, early 1800s, to communicate from the Native people up in Alaska all the way down to the Native people in California. So anyway, it's very, uh, I think you'll find that uh, that Tony's an interesting guest, and I think it'll be a, a great show. Well, and I'm hoping to. we got to get him to speak the language on the American Shoreline Podcast Network and share it with... Uh, <laughs> at least several sentences with our audience. Hey, he can do that. <laughs> he can also write it. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, but if you see it written, it's a little bit more. Anyway, Tony would be a great guest, and I'll well, see what I can do to I'll, get him on. I'll tell you, Thane, uh, I was just thinking about uh, the, the importance of these canoes and, and the cultural heritage of passing on. Uh, you know, th- these were the principal uh, vehicle of the region, and you think about how tied, you know, if you think about Detroit and automaking and how it's such an important part of that culture. And that's really like an 80 year, like sub hundred year manufacturing tradition. And we're talking about with this, with these tribes, we're talking about thousands of years of culture and tradition and technique and pride that was put into these crafts. So I think, I'd think that's a wonderful show idea, Thane, but I know that's not your only show idea. What else you've got cooking? No, I've got a couple of other ideas, you know, um, another one, uh, and, you know, thankfully I think these are all people I know, but, uh, and, and you've got to refresh my memory and tell me too, if this is a topic you already covered, but, um, certainly when we talk about the American shoreline, uh, one of the, the, the entities that comes to mind that is present on all parts of the American shoreline and plays a very active role on a day-to-day basis. And, a, and, uh, and thankfully, one that boaters uh, uh, in particular rely upon, and that's the U.S. Coast Guard. And they've got a major presence in in the mouth of the Columbia River in my hometown of Astoria. Uh, in fact, the fellow I grew up with, Ray Rutta, uh, became the second highest ranking officer, a three-star admiral in the Coast Guard, but I thought uh, it would be interesting to have the Coast Guard on. Uh, the mayor of Astoria, Bruce Jones, is a retired Coast Guard officer, and I know he was real active in pioneering um, some of the safety uh, techniques and breakthroughs that the Coast Guard has used uh, um, with uh, with enormous success over the last uh, many years to rescue uh, boaters in distress and the like. But uh, the Coast Guard is, is more 
really just a rescue outfit. They, they of course, perform a, um, uh, a valuable um, uh, source of, of uh, um, information about sea conditions generally. They're out there doing enforcement of fisheries and, and other law enforcement responsibilities um, in addition to their search and rescue function. But um, they have an air service. They have planes, you know, that are involved. And I just think it'd be interesting to, to learn more about the role the Coast Guard plays in, uh, in the life of uh, those people who live along the American shoreline. Yeah, so, that's, Anyway, that's another show. I love that one, too. You know, we haven't covered that very well. I mean, Bob Frump did a show about uh, Navy, about Coast Guard rescue divers, an old hand, and told stories Michael about... Michael Carr. Yeah, Michael Carr. That was a really interesting show. And, of course, we have Jenna's dad. Jenna's dad is a Coast Guard Father's Day special. Yeah, she, she runs... Yeah, she she's on... Uh, uh, what's her... What's her show? I can't remember. The Sea Change podcast. She talks about. Yeah, we've, we've had a couple of drinks already, guys. So. Yeah, we're, oh well, I say it's all right. Um, <laughs> but I think thing the other I thing I can't relate. The, the Coast Guard has been busy this week off the coast of Georgia rescuing the four people off of that ship that capsized. Um, so you know, yeah, I think the Coast Guard show. What a cool thing to have um, you on the network. I'm so glad you're doing these shows. I love both of these. Yeah, and then uh, it occurred to me too. I, again, these are just ideas I'm I'm thinking about. Um, but uh, the uh, a, a good friend of mine is Guido Rar. Do you know Guido? Uh, Guido is the chief executive officer of the Wild Salmon Center, which is headquartered here in Portland. And just a new book out about him and his uh, his very uh, extraordinary life called Stronghold, and. Uh, the stronghold in this case refers to kind of the strategy that the Wild Salmon Center has adopted uh, for its mission, which is to protect what they refer to as salmon strongholds um, throughout uh, the historic range of the Pacific salmon. And that includes kind of interestingly and, and, and uniquely uh, the, uh, the salmon stocks that uh, return to spawn in the streams of uh, far eastern Russia and Kamchatka. Wow. Uh, and so, uh, and he has, he, Guido has been there many times and has worked closely with the Russian government and Russian scientists to learn more about those, uh, the, uh, the so-called six salmon, the Taimen, T-A-I-M-E-N is, uh, that's the spelling anyway, uh, is again, unique to, to, to Russia. And, uh, that's one that, that they've worked in particular with, uh, the Russians, uh, in trying to ensure their, um, not only survival, but their, their, uh, their, uh, restoration. So anyway, I thought that would be an interesting show. Uh, Guido, uh, just has a, had an interesting life and, um, I thought, with the new book about him and this, uh, particularly the the, the uh, unusual uh, connection with the, the salmon stocks. That yeah, they all swim together in that North Pacific, you know, with uh, our California, Oregon, Washington, Canadian, Alaskan stocks. But uh, you know, they go they go uh, go right when they go home, and and ours go left and south. You know, so uh, it should be interesting. Um, wow. I'll tell you a thing. Um, 
the Changing Waters podcast on ASPN. Ladies and gentlemen, that is some cool stuff coming up. I'm looking forward to all of that. And it's one of the great things about having uh, shows originating in that part of the United States. We're down here in Texas and it's hot as hell. And, you know, we don't talk about salmon too much down here, but... uh, you got to have this firsthand account and you got to have people who know what's going on and know the players in the system and can bring both the culture and the science and the, the heritage to the network, man. That is man. Agreed. Now, listen, this is yeah. a, this is sorry. A, this sorry. is a quick, these are all ideas worth drinking for. So, uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate all of those ideas, Thane. And, um, I think that well, I've got a couple more, of course. Oh, well, well, let's keep going. <laughs> yeah, keep going. What else are you thinking about? All right. Well, so uh, as I mentioned to you, I've had the privilege of going up to Alaska, and one of the areas where I was uh, fortunate enough to go um, was Kivalina in the Northwest Arctic Borough. Uh, my law firm represents the Northwest Arctic Borough, which is um, headquartered there in Kosibu, the state of Alaska. Unlike most states, uh, is not uh, involved or doesn't. Segmented into counties or in so Louisiana's thing, case thing, and thing, parishes, but in boroughs. And this is the Northwest Arctic Borough and up on the Chukchi Sea. Okay. And, I just, well, uh, just got to, when you say borough, we're not talking about, you know, the pack animal. We're talking about borough as no, in, no, no, as in city. O-U-G-H. That's how Alaska is divided like into. Like Brooklyn. Uh, Thank you. Like the borough. Yeah, okay. These, yeah, these subordinate governing units. Uh, anyway, the Northwest Arctic Borough, vast place the size of Indiana with about 6,000 people living in that entire area. So it's very remote. Um, the uh, The Native people that live up there pride themselves on maintaining their subsistence uh, standard of living. Uh, and uh, that standard and, and uh, style of living has historically involved uh, relying upon the, the, the caribou, the reindeer, um, for for warmth, subsidence, but also, more importantly, the, the, the fish, seals, whale, beluga whales, uh, sea lions, uh, they, they have uh, the ability to hunt it. Now, these are not endangered stocks. They only harvest very few, but it is something they have done for thousands of years, and it is an important part of their subsistence culture, um, and one that uh, the, uh, they have fought hard to maintain. The problem, of course, has been uh, climate change, or at least changing conditions, and in particular, the, the, the breakup, the, the melting of the ice that occurs uh, historically every year, but it usually would, if you went back 20 years ago, that breakup would occur maybe early June, late May, and now it's into early April. I mean, it's really been a uh, a sea change, pardon the pun, but the problem then means that the, the tribal members, native members, have to travel very long distances in order to maintain their hunting, fishing um, uh, practices that they normally have. And uh, these are villages where maybe 100 people live, something like that. The one that I was in that's gotten a lot of press is Kivalina, which along with Shishmaref are the two northwest Arctic villages that are eroding into the sea that won't be there uh, very much longer. And there were efforts made to relocate the villages. I think there still are. But uh, 
I'm, I know that, or at least I'm acquainted with uh, some of the leaders up there, and I thought it would be uh, a fascinating show to talk to to your uh, to them and and let your listeners know uh, in greater detail what this uh, really rich uh, uh, millennia old way of life was like, and and how it's being affected by what's going on in in our Arctic waters today. So, Damn, I think you're going to get the award. These Every one of these is a smash idea uh, because of the significance of the issue. I I have read about those uh, Alaskan villages on the shoreline, and I would say the feeble attempts to get this issue addressed effectively. Um, we have got to get better at this in uh, our government programs and how we respond. But I wanted to ask you this: then I've been I've been reading about water temperatures and salmon migration in Alaska that the that the river temperatures have been high. What, what's happening in the community up there? What are you hearing? Is that true? And it's apparently, I've read, leading to some level of mortality in the migrating salmon. Is that true? Well, it, it is. It's more of a concern. As, and again, you know, I'm not a biologist. I'm the lawyer that knows a fair amount about fisheries, but don't know this. But it is. It's a concern because salmon, of course, historically, like all creatures, have evolved uh, in a certain um, um, geographic system that had a certain temperature range, a certain depth of water range, certain water condition range, and any time you change those dramatically over a short period of time, uh, the, the creatures that have evolved to, to live and thrive in that environment uh, suddenly uh, are meeting with such dramatically changed conditions they can't deal with it. And temperature has been a big one because as water is warm, um, then it it means uh, that the fish are essentially having to spend more energy to deal with those rising temperatures, um, and they can't make it back to their natal uh, streams to spawn. Um, and uh, so, yes, it's, it's, and it affects mortality. You end up effectively with waters that are more like uh, hot tubs, um, and uh, uh, or you know, warm, you know, certainly warm, warm streams and rivers where they uh, simply cannot uh, cannot thrive and make it back to, to where they are. So we end up with a lot of that. We see that more in the lower 48, as we call it, which is the streams in Oregon and Washington, between the Columbia River and particularly um, in the the more eastern ranges of the Columbia River. Again, Columbia River, as you know, Peter, from your time up here, historically was the salmon capital of the world. Um, that was true uh, until the dams went in uh, during uh, the uh, the 1930s. Uh, big, large dams, and I think today there's something. If you look at the entire Columbia River system, which has its headwaters in Canada, it extends even into Wyoming and certainly western Montana, um, has something like 156 dams on it. But um, uh, as a consequence of that, um, those uh, the damming of the river, which was a boon to the to the economy of the of the Northwest uh, throughout the World War II and subsequent eras, but it's taken a real pull on salmon and it's basically transformed those areas behind the dams into warm water lakes, uh, which makes creatures that didn't historically live there, bass, for example. Um, the squawfish, as they're known, there's a pike, 
thrive, but these are warmwater fish, and the salmon, uh, again, are having a very difficult time, and so salmon mortality from those warm waters has been a big problem. So, yeah, that's true in Alaska. But at the same token, this year they're looking at, at uh, if not record, then near record returns of salmon overall. Now, the composition of those returning runs is uh, is something that um, is a function of climate conditions. Pink salmon are really coming back. Uh, yeah, I've heard that. In big numbers. They almost talk- Bay had, had strong numbers in in four of their five areas this year, only Ugashik uh, really had a down year, so um, uh, significantly down year anyway. So they had record returns. So um, you know, right now, I don't think the uh, you know there's a there's a panic on, but Alaska, thankfully, because of its remoteness um, and and lower population, really hasn't had the habitat damage that we've experienced here in the. Uh, you know, the lower 48. They don't have a lot of dams. They don't have uh, the habitat loss. And, you know, so anyway, it's, I think the salmon have a, uh, are likely to uh, to be, uh, uh, you know, they're going to remain, and they're going to, I think, continue to thrive up there, barring, you know, really catastrophic change. And certainly the state is... Um, of Alaska, which depends on its fisheries and no small part for a big part of its economic uh, well-being is committed to do that. And they do a great job of making sure that the escapement, that the numbers of, before anybody gets to fish, both recreationally or commercially, they make sure that escapement in those streams uh, is satisfied. And, and not until that happens do you get to go fishing. So I you know, I, I'm optimistic when it comes to to Alaska, not less so when it comes to our almost southern socks on the salmon. Anyway. Well, <clears throat> Thane, I have to say, uh, you've got some great show ideas here. Uh, you've kind of set the table. And our audience gets to look forward to these shows coming out over the next few it's months. It's going to be a feast. It's going to be. It will be. We'll be feasting on, it sounds like, some salmon. Uh, uh, but listen, Thane, really appreciate you coming on Friday Happy Hour uh, and sharing these ideas with the audience. Well, thank you both for having me, uh, and uh, I've been uh, I've been enjoying your show. I'm I'm delighted to see you've now celebrated, as I understand it, your very first anniversary. So congratulations um, on that milestone, and uh, look forward to be uh, a contributor uh, and a host, and continuing to what, to listen to what have been really uh, I, you know a wealth of information that uh, continues to really. Um, the interest and even indeed fascinate me. So good going, guys. Thanks. You know, Thane, yeah, we passed our one-year anniversary and soon here, and I haven't looked, Tyler, to see, we're coming up really close here on our 200th show. And I don't know which show is going to be dropped in at the 200 mark, but it's going to happen this month. I'm pretty sure, yeah, we will pass 200 shows in September. And uh, it's been a great conversation about the American shoreline. That's what Tyler and I were setting out to do is trying to have a damn good conversation about what's fascinating, interesting, the complexity of the American shoreline. And uh, 
I, I, really, it's been an amazing first year. And we have a lot more great content coming up. We're expanding the network. We're programming more. We're, we've got more live event coverage coming up in the next 200 episodes, the next year of coverage. So there's a lot to look forward to. And a lot of that is we owe to great hosts like Thane. So thanks so much for coming on. Everybody have a great weekend. Be safe out there. And thanks for joining us for Friday Happy Hour. Thank you.